1987, the untutored theologian Michael Jackson, also known as the King of Pop, wrote these words. You know I'm bad. I'm bad, come on. Bad, bad. Really, really bad. You know I'm bad. I'm bad. You know it. You know it. Bad, bad. Really, really bad. You know, you know. You know. Come on. Bad, bad. Really, really bad. And I'm pretty certain that Michael Jackson was writing in such a way as to present bad as good or cool. However, if we just take his words at face value on a a lexical level, then Jackson is articulating a truth that many never discover. Indeed, he was bad, really, really bad. And so too are we. So too are you. Bad to the bone, in fact. Paul tells us that all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We define sin as a failure to conform to the moral law of God and act or attitude or nature. In other words, sin is choosing to do things our way instead of God's way. God is good and holy and righteous, and His way leads to flourishing, while our way leads to destruction. And apart from Jesus, apart from His saving grace, we are all, by nature, children of wrath. None of us can do anything to restore right relationship with God. On our own, there's no getting back to good. We stand condemned before the just God of the universe. Thus, we can all join Jackson's chorus and together say, I'm bad. We're so bad, in fact, that Jesus had to die for us, yet we're so loved that he was glad to die for us. That's the good news of the gospel that Paul recounts for us in Romans when he writes, God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. That's good news. That's the gospel. That God saves sinners. That's the, that's the main idea of our text this morning. That's the one big thing that I want you to grab a hold of. That Jesus loves bad people. I'm going to try to support that with three different parts as we walk through the text. A walk, a feast, and an explanation. A stroll, a party, and an explanation. Those are the the three sections we're going to walk through. We're going to try to see that. Jesus loves bad people. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2. We're going to cover verses 13 through 17. Would you pray with me before we uh, move forward and do that? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you work through broken people in a broken world. To demonstrate your glory. To show us your manifold perfections. I thank you that one day you will return and that you're going to make everything sad come untrue. And that you proclaimed this great hope to us in the gospel. Lord, help us to hear your word this morning. To understand it. To be shaped by it. 
Lord, we love you. Amen. So look with me at verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, that's Jesus, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. So Jesus is out and about. He's teaching in an area where many can hear him and respond to his teaching. Jesus is a people person. And there's a simple principle here. To reach the lost, you have to be with the lost. And you must share the gospel, the teaching of Jesus Christ. Which is easier said than done, right? If you're like me, you're naturally maybe an introvert, bent towards uh, spending time by yourself in seclusion, and you're just good to go there. But the simple truth remains, in order to reach lost people, which is a mandate of the gospel, you have to be around lost people. And so a very simple application as we get going this morning is find ways to engage those that do not know Jesus. Engage non-Christians. It's okay, you're not going to catch the disease of sin. You're already a sinner. Being around sinners isn't going to cause you to sin right away. Get around people that don't know Jesus. Engage them. So Jesus is strolling along, and he purposefully comes across a tax collector in verse 14. And he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. I think we have to ask, who is Levi? And uh, you probably know who Levi is. He's also known by another name, as are many of the characters throughout Scripture, uh, which is Matthew, right? And Matthew gives us the book of Matthew. And so Matthew, Levi here, is uh, met with Jesus' call. And he is bad. He's one of these bad people. In fact, he's among the worst of the worst in Jewish society. He's a thief and a swindler. He's a member of a mafia-like group known as tax collectors. Uh, Think corrupt IRS agent, uh, maybe overcharges people for profit. That's, you've got a tax collector when you've got that going on. They're lumped together uh, with thieves and murderers, as we said. Uh, A Jew who collected taxes would be disqualified uh, as a judge or a witness in court. They were expelled from the synagogue. They were a disgrace to their family. I mean, the touch of a tax collector rendered a house unclean, much like a leper. Jews were forbidden to receive money and even alms from tax collectors, since the revenue from taxes was deemed as robbery. So when people see Matthew, Levi, they see the scum of the earth. But when Jesus sees him, he sees what he would become by grace through faith. When Jesus looked at Matthew, Levi, he didn't see the scum of the earth. But a beauty. Quick side note here. This is how Jesus sees you. Even though you're sinful and separated from God. When you believe in Jesus, that's how he sees you. When you follow Jesus, he sees you as an absolute beauty. And that's what he makes you in the gospel. Jesus saw a man that would receive mercy. He saw a man that would follow him. Now, it's true that Jesus knows all things and knows each individual better than they know themselves. But I still think there's a lesson for us to to learn here about how we should engage others. I think that we should look at others. We should treat others as Jesus treats them. We should see others as Jesus sees them. Right? Red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. How do you see people? Do you dismiss people? Do you think poorly of people? 
Do you think, thank God I'm not like that guy? Thank God I'm not like that person. Let's see people as precious. Let's see them for who they can become in Christ. Who Jesus is making them. Beautiful people. God's people. I think it's important that we not only do this with strangers, but also with our friends and our family. I mean, how does your marriage change if when your spouse is sinning against you, you recognize, look, that's not who my spouse is. Right? That's, that's the sin in them. But I know who Jesus is making my spouse. Beautiful. And I'm going to treat my spouse for who they are in Christ, who God is making them rather than according to their sin. I'm going to treat my spouse as God has treated me with grace rather than according to their sin. See people for who they are and who they are becoming in Christ, not for who they were in their sins. Jesus sees Matthew Levi and he says, follow me. And shockingly, we read that Matthew rose and followed him. I mean, it's shocking, not only that Jesus calls Levi, I mean, it actually might have been more offensive than uh, contact with the leper, since the leper's condition wasn't chosen, and, and Matthew's was, right? He chose to become a tax collector. It's shocking that Jesus not only calls Levi, but also that Levi follows him. Jesus sees a sinner in need of salvation, and Levi sees a savior. Levi follows this story reminds me of another encounter Jesus has, one with, uh, that's been dubbed kind of the, the story of the rich young ruler. And I'm going to summarize it for you a little bit here, and, and we'll come across it again in Mark 10 later. But basically what happens is the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he asks, how do I inherit eternal life? How do I get to heaven? How do I get peace with God? And Jesus says, you know the commandments, and he lists off a couple. The rich young man says, I've kept all of these. Let's ignore the fact that's probably a lie, right? And he's probably breaking a commandment right there. But he thinks that he's kept all the commandments. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus tells him some commandments. I've done all that, Jesus. I've kept the commandments. And Jesus responds to him. He says, you lack one thing. Sell everything and follow me. And the rich young ruler is rich. He's young and he's a ruler has everything going for him. He's kept all the commandments. Jesus says, sell everything and follow me. In that story, he goes away sorrowful. He doesn't follow Jesus. I think Levi is kind of the anti-rich young ruler. Just like the rich young ruler, he's secure economically. But unlike the rich young ruler, he doesn't have any illusions about his goodness. He knows that he's bad. The rich young ruler, on the other hand, doesn't see his need for Jesus. In his mind, he's kept the commandments. He thinks that he's good. So when Jesus says to Matthew Levi, follow me, Matthew Levi understands his need to be made right with God. Then we're told in uh, the parallel account in, in Luke 5.28 that he leaves everything and follows. While the rich young ruler goes away sad. Because his trust remains in his own goodness. His love remains on his possessions. And he remains lost. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are you more like Matthew Levi? Or are you more like the rich young ruler? 
Do you think that you're really a good person? Or do you understand that you are bad? Do you see yourself as healthy or as sick? It's God's kindness that overcomes our suppression of the truth. It's his goodness that alerts us to the fact that we are sinners, that we're losers. That we need a savior. Thanks be to God that Jesus loves bad people. That Jesus saves sinners. Verse 15, and as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. I think Mark is a little ambiguous here about whose house they're at, but Luke clears it up for us in his account. And he says, and Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. So Jesus is at Levi's house. He tells Levi, follow me. Levi says, I'm going to follow you. Let's have a party at my place. And in case Jesus hadn't upset and confused the scribes and the Pharisees enough, he presses this issue. He commits kind of social suicide here by eating, not just with Levi, but with other tax collectors, many sinners, a bunch of bad people. I mean, these sinners are no doubt stunned that such a famous young teacher would share table with them. And no doubt the scribes and the Pharisees are greatly offended. I mean, after all, Jewish dietary laws were and are intended to exclude contact with people that aren't Jewish. Especially as it relates to eating together. Jesus' disrespect for this essential Jewish boundary causes great offense to the scribes and the Pharisees. His behavior is again exacerbating a latent tension. It's causing it to come into open conflict with the scribes, with the religious people. If you remember last week in the first 12 verses of chapter 2, this conflict resulted from him forgiving sins. And here it results from his eating with sinners. I think in both instances, in both circumstances, Jesus could have accomplished the same goal or similar ends by avoiding the conflict. But that's not what he does. The stories leave us with the impression that the conflict is not the result of negligence, but of Jesus' provocation. The tax collectors and sinners invite him to dinner, whereas the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious folks, they stand outside of the feast in judgment. The religious leaders here show us a picture of just how ugly and pathetic prejudice or judgmentalism is. They would never eat with such people. But the Messiah saves sinners. The meal here in some ways anticipates something of the great marriage supper of the Lamb. When people from every tongue, tribe, and nation who have experienced the scandalous grace of God, including the unlikely and the undesirable, will eat with King Jesus at a great banquet that will never end. This is the scandalous grace that Jesus offers to sinners like you and me. It is mysterious and amazing and thrilling. The grace of God extends to and overcomes the worst forms of human depravity. Ironically, in one sense, great sinners stand closer to God than those who think themselves righteous. For sinners are more aware of their need of the transforming grace of God. God's grace is great. 
I mean, his gifts are beyond measure. There's freely given as the light of the sun. He gives grace to his elect because he wills it, to his redeemed because of his covenant, to his called because of his promise, to believers because they seek it, to sinners because they need it. His grace is dynamic. And it's to be understood in terms of its dynamic expression. It's a dynamic expression of the divine personality rather than some static attribute of God's nature. Grace is the dimension of divine activity that enables God to confront human indifference and rebellion with an inexhaustible capacity to forgive and to bless. God is gracious in action. And God's grace is manifest to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus is how God makes it possible Jesus makes it possible for God to bestow on believers undeserved benefits that enrich our lives and unite us together with the church, the body of Christ. Our acceptance is on the basis of grace. It endows us with a new status as children of God, members of the household of God, so that we relate to God no longer as his enemies, but as his sons and as his daughters. Yes, Jesus is eating with bad people, with sinners saved by grace through faith. He's eating with his brothers and sisters in the Lord, those that have become fellow members of God's own household. Jesus is celebrating with Matthew, Levi, and the others that have followed him. They're celebrating. They're having a party. Yet the religious folks, who you would assume are closer to God, remain outside of the celebration with their arms crossed and their lips pursed together, wondering how Jesus could befriend such filth. Who won't you eat with? I mean, do you ever look down on somebody because of prejudice? Because they're just really bad people. I mean, if you were in this situation, would you have been celebrating with Jesus or would you have been outside appalled and angry? I mean, would you, if Jesus were walking with you physically today, would you and he hang out with the same people? Let me uh, make this application more positively if I can. Eat with, be friends with sinners. Befriend the lost. To reach the lost, you must be with the lost. You must love bad people. Jesus loves bad people. Eventually, as the scribes and Pharisees sit outside, confused and a little bit angry, they can't hold back their curiosity any longer. Verse 16, and the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You know, sometimes I think the scribes and Pharisees get a little bit of a bad rap, right? They get a bad beat because they weren't always thought of as like legalistic hypocrites. So I say scribes or Pharisees, all of us think, all right, these are not examples to be followed. But in fact, they were really greatly admired in their culture. I mean, historian Josephus claims that they numbered about 6,000 in Jesus' day. 
And while the Sadducees, another religious group, were mostly upper class, aristocrats, and priests, the Pharisees appear to have been primarily middle class lay people, maybe even craftsmen and merchants. Sadducees had this great political power, but the Pharisees had broader support among the people. The distinctive characteristics of the Pharisees was their strict adherence to the law of Moses and the Torah. They carefully obeyed not only the written law, but also the oral law, a body of extra-biblical traditions that expanded and elaborated on the Old Testament. Their goal was to apply the Torah's mandates to everyday life. So listen, this is a group that's concerned with holiness. Right? That's a good thing. They're really good guys by almost anyone's standards in this culture. Jesus condemns them not for pursuing holiness, but for pursuing the actions of holiness over and above the attitude of holiness. For focusing on the outward requirements of the law while ignoring matters of the heart. I guess all I'm trying to say here is that in general, the Pharisees are well-liked and well-respected despite their extra-biblical traditions, despite all these extra things that they they did in order to guard against sin. I mean, they they basically kind of said, here's what the law says, and if I break that, it's going to be sin. And they've kind of built a fence around it to make sure they don't even get close to sin. That's their their goal. I mean, they they, they went above and beyond. An example would be that hands and utensils had to be properly washed, and food had to be properly grown, tithed, and prepared. And so ritual purity would be very important to them. And so they refused to eat with anybody that might not wash their hands or follow those same restrictions at the table. Thus, they refused to eat with people that Jesus is eating with right now, with sinners. He's eating with people they wouldn't associate with because they don't want to be stained by their sin. See, Jesus' fellowship with these sinners violates social and religious convention rather than promoting it. And this story is illustrating for us the truth of verses 1 through 12, wherein Jesus pronounced the forgiveness of sins there. He, here he forgives sinners. He's entering into their world. He's in their house eating with them. And the scribes and the Pharisees are obviously having a hard time wrapping their heads around this. And so they ask in a way that's more criticism than question. Why does he do this? Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? They don't understand why Jesus would want to be with with these losers. Why he would want to hang out with these bad people rather than good people like them. They ask this and Jesus, uh, he hits them with a good proverb here. He wants to clear up. In verse 17, he says, when Jesus heard this, He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The Pharisees see themselves as the good guys and everybody else as the bad guys. Jesus is utilizing some irony here to expose the hypocrisy of those that would hate him, his haters. He's pointing out that there are no good guys, that all people are bad people, that there are all bad guys. We're all bad guys. 
mean, sure, we do good things on occasion, right? We're made in God's image. After all, we can't help but do good. But none of us, no person, is perfect. Therefore, no one is good. Jesus is showing these religiously moral and upright people that they need a spiritual doctor just as much as the tax collectors and the wicked. Think of this a little bit like a terrible disease. A person who knows they have the disease and goes to the doctor can be healed from it. But the person that does not know they have the sickness or pretends that they don't have the disease will be killed by it. Jesus is saying, you must recognize your need before I meet it for you. Sometimes I think as Christians, we forget our neediness. We forget our spiritual poverty. We forget that pronouncement of Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit. We forget our complete dependence on Jesus. Sometimes I think we're just like the Pharisees. We see ourselves as good people and look at other not so good people and condemn them categorically. We say something along the lines of, I would never do that. I mean, we look at somebody in the news like Bernie Madoff, who made off with a ton of money. Pun intended there. Made off, made off with money. Uh, and we say, hey, hey, good. He got what was coming to him. But I would never do something like that. Or maybe more recently, we see uh, in the NFL, the, the Ray Rice situation. I would never do something like that. Or maybe we look at someone like Paul the Apostle who murdered Christians, persecuted the church and say, I would never. We think ourselves as good people. We look at bad people and say, like the Pharisee does, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, idolaters, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. And I give tithes of all that I get. I would never is simply not true. Hear me now. No one of us, no one of you is above any sin at any time. Any one of us, any one of you can fall prey to any sin at any time, anywhere. Don't be foolish enough to think that you can't fall. Don't be dumb enough to think that you've outgrown your need for grace. Do you think and pray like the Pharisee? God, thank you that I'm not like other men. Or as the tax collector, who standing far off does not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beats his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus loves bad people. Don't be like the rich young ruler thinking that you're good on your own, loving your stuff more than Jesus and turning away from Jesus sorrowful. Be like Matthew Levi. Understand your need to be made right with God. Love Jesus supremely. Turn away from self and from stuff towards Jesus joyfully. Jesus loves bad people. He tells a, another parable, and it's, uh, you might know it's a parable of the prodigal son, and I think it's better titled the 
parable of the prodigal sons, and it features a rebellious man and a religious man. The rebellious son takes his inheritance from his father early on and goes out into the world. He squanders all the money while the religious son stays at home with their father and he keeps all the rules. One day the rebel son returns home and he says these words. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us celebrate. Let us eat. For my son was dead and he is alive. He was lost. He is found. Let us celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and As he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called to one of the servants. And he asked, what is going on? The servant said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf. Because he has received him back safe and sound. The older brother was angry. He refused to go in. His father came out to entreat him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat. You never let me celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, this filth of yours comes home, this one who's devoured your property and squandered it with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him? And the father said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And the story ends with the rebel son inside and the religious son outside. Why? Because Jesus is making a point directly to his audience, directly to the Pharisees and the religious people. In verse 2 in Luke 15, where this uh, parable occurs, we're told right before this comes up, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus is putting the Pharisees, the grumblers, in the story as the elder brother. He's pleading with them to respond to his message. Everyone is wrong and separated from God. Everyone is loved and everyone is called to recognize this and change. They're invited to come into the feast, but they remain outside. See, the Pharisees, like the religious brother, believe their rule keeping and their do-goodness earns them favor from the father. But the father's affection cannot be earned. It cannot be bought. It's only received. It's grace freely given. The Pharisees, like the religious older brother, love their own self-righteousness rather than the grace of the father. And so they remain outside. What about you? Also, it would be remiss to not point out, I, I read this parable so long for so wrong for so wrong for so long 
I think that the primary son that's being highlighted for us here is the elder brother. It comes on the heels of two other parables. You have a sheep that's lost and the shepherd goes out and looks for the lost sheep and he puts the sheep on his shoulders and takes it back to the 99 and everybody celebrates. And then you have a woman, she loses some money in her house and she turns on all the lights and she sweeps across the house to find this lost coin. And she finds it and she calls all her friends together and they celebrate. What is lost is found. And in the parable of the prodigal sons, the son goes off, the rebellious one, and he's lost. And we're left asking this question. Who is going to look for the lost son? I'll tell you who it's supposed to be. Supposed to be the elder brother. But here Jesus has substituted the Pharisees in, in the place of the elder brother. And the elder brother, instead of looking for the lost rebellious son, stays at home and keeps the rules. Worries about his own righteousness. He's too good to be around filth like his brother. But friends, do you see? Jesus is the true and better elder brother who comes and he looks for the lost. He looks for you and for me. And he eats with us in celebration of the fact that what was lost is found. He eats with sinners. What about you? You inside or are you outside with your arms crossed? Christian, do you daily recognize your need to be fully dependent upon the grace of God? Do you daily repent of your sin and confess your need for Jesus? Do you daily celebrate this great and wonderful fellowship with God? Do you have the joy of a rebel brother, of a sinner that has been saved by grace through faith? Or do you remain outside bitter and angry? Trusting in your own goodness. Which is really no good. Non-Christian, whether you are a rule-breaking rebel or a rule-keeping religious. Jesus says to you, follow me. The question for all of us this morning, we have to deal with it daily as Christians. The question, will I sell everything and follow Jesus? Christian, will you follow Jesus today? Non-Christian, will you follow Jesus today? Will you go away sorrowful? Or will you come to Jesus joyfully? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you Save sinners like me. Sinners like us. And I thank you that you united us together. In this wonderful fellowship known as your church. Thank you that we are the house of the Lord. That you dwell in and among each and every one of us. Thank you by the power of your Holy Spirit. You energize us to live in faith. To work out the things that you have uh, called us to do. Lord, we thank you that you've called us together in this room this morning to hear from your word. Thank you that we're broken people. And that you use us as instruments of your mercy. As your kingdom continues to advance 
to every corner of the earth. As you continue to make everything sad become untrue. Lord, you are our great hope. And we thank you that you call us to be a part of this kingdom building. And Lord, together we look forward to your return. And joyfully pray together, come Lord Jesus. Amen.